thewellnesscouch.com. Streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. This is Up for a Chat with your hosts, Cindy O'Meara and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara. And I'm Kim Morrison. And this week, have we got a surprise for you. The gorgeous Adam Gibson is joining us on Up for a Chat. This incredible soul is someone who is very big about developing businesses to help support biodiversity and regenerative agriculture. This is so up your alley, Cindy O'Meara. Mm-hmm. I reckon you got to come off the back of this with your opening question. I do, actually. You know, I, I I met Adam at a biodynamics, um, I guess, seminar that was put on by Hamish McKay and Charlie Arnott, and it was on uh, his property, and I didn't know anything about Adam, but everybody kept whispering about who this man was. So my question, I guess, first to you, Adam, is where? how did you start out in your uh, working career because it's not what you're doing now, but I find it fascinating that you were um, doing what you were doing and and how you morphed to where you are now, which for me is one of the most exciting careers you could possibly be in is what you're doing now. But let's start at the beginning. Cool. Well, look, thank you for the introduction. It's been some years since I've been described as gorgeous, so I'll take that. Um, but um, look, I. I started in the fitness and wellness industry. So I started um, as a real buff head in a gym, in the gym business. <laughs> so like back in the late 80s, I, I got involved. I convinced my dad at the time, who was also into bodybuilding. We we're both mad into bodybuilding and had grown up kind of, um, you know, following Arnold and Lou Ferrigno and all the names that everyone knows now. But back in those days, they were complete, it was this niche, tiny little weird sport full of these big muscly men. And we were both into that, even though I was kind of a skinny distance runner type looking guy. Um, and I convinced my dad, let's buy a gym together. And there was a, a gym that we were training at was going to go broke. And we decided to buy that gym and we picked it up and turned it around. And 17 years later, I was still in the business. So I was in the fitness industry for a very long time. And in that space, um, I was you know, watching an industry go from a spit and sawdust backyard industry to, you know, what it became over that sort of 15, 20 year period and what it is now. It, it went from a, a nothing industry to a multi-billion dollar wellness industry where there's gyms on every street corner. At the time, there was three gyms in Brisbane, I think total, and we were one of them. So, you know, three big gyms. So I watched that industry grow and I was involved in, I guess, you know, watching wellness expand and become something it wasn't, it was suddenly for everybody. So, you know, everyone got involved. Um, and from there, I got out of that business and decided to, I found myself coaching people and I coached, I realized I'd had a lot, a lot of aptitude to coach people in the natural health space because I'd kind of ridden that wave of a, an emerging industry going from you know, backyard industry to quite big as a fitness thing. And I saw that the natural health industry was going and experiencing the similar sort of shift and metamorphosis. So I coached in the end over the next 15 or so years, thousands of health practitioners, natural health practitioners, including nutritionists, 
um, integrative doctors, uh, a couple of integrative pharmacists, um, which is kind of not even a real thing, but you know, people who are pharmacists into that thing, uh, chiros, naturopaths, um, acupuncturists, and so on, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a really good background in seeing um, the patients, the clients I was dealing with, all were working with people at the end of their tether with chronic disease and getting to the point where they're like, you know, I've tried everything and nothing's worked and here I am, I go back to these natural therapies looking for a solution. And nearly every case, not everything, but for, for the most part, you know, it was all about nutritional environmental medicine. In other words, the nutrition was wrong and the environment was toxic as, as the underlying cause of so many problems that my few thousand clients who were practitioners also had thousands of clients of their own. So I kind of got this filtered understanding that our society in general was not on a very good trajectory health-wise because people were getting sicker than you'd believe in the newspaper every day. Um, and they're winding up in these clinics and nutrition and environmental toxins were, you know, overwhelmingly the problem. So I, I got to, I, long story short, I got to the point that I realized that that was the place I'd like to make an impact in was in shifting how our food system operates and starting pr providing, I guess, a, um, I was really motivated just by thinking, well, I, just, I want every child in this country to be eating an organic dinner every night, not just those who can afford it. So there was a really basic thing for me being a parent was like, surely our kids deserve clean food and clean environment as a, as a baseline, not as a privilege. So I launched myself into the regenerative space. That's kind of the short version. Yeah, it is a very short version. I, I want to just take you back a step and I want to where I really got to know you and that was over the last three years, over the pandemic or pandemic, whatever we want to call it, uh, and how you stood up amongst many, like many people as a father, as somebody who wanted to make an impact on what was happening and, and, and gather a community together that um, could be helped through this. And with you, with you, Greg Carlson, um, and uh, Charlie Arnott. And it's so funny when you three uh, stood up and started Parents with Questions, I, you know what I, I did? I said, thank goodness. Thank goodness three men are standing up and are about to, you know, make a statement and um, help other people that are thinking something's not right. This this doesn't make sense. Why are we injecting our children, number one, with a experimental vaccine that we don't know what's going to happen? Why are we putting masks on our children uh, when we know that they don't work? Why are we isolating our families? Why, you know, and so on and so on. So I want to go back to how did you start parents with questions I, like what was it that the three of you just went we have to do something what was that impetus look i've, I've got to correct you on one thing and one or two things actually one was um it was john farris um, oh it was john the, farris yeah it was john farris charlie arnott and myself so john's the, as you know the the, the inexcess yeah. drummer and um who, who's a neighbor of mine and charlie's a neighbor also so as the three of us were the the the, the original founders um, 
And the other part I want to correct on is that you, you said not inject our kids with something. We're not knowing what would happen. Well, the reality was at that point, we did know what would happen. And the, I watched what was happening. So the, this is the origin of it. We sat around a campfire and I'd, I'd got my nose out of joint and not just because the kids have been bumped out of school and they're trying to put masks on them. But when I saw the vaccine roll out, I could see the sales job that was in it. I just thought, this is just a classic, you know, create some pain, twist the knife a bit, lock people down, uh, terrify them, and then offer this wonderful solution and, you know, what could possibly go wrong. So it was just a classic sales technique. As a, as a salesman all my life, I could see it. But I could also saw this. As I, I, I looked up on the TGA website at the time, the kids the, the kids rollout hadn't started, but the adults had been been getting the jab for a little while. And I can't remember the exact numbers of how many people had had it, but on the TGA website, it had listed at that point, this is, this is oh, I can't remember what date it was now, but months before the kids rollout happened, there was about 555 or so deaths reported from the jab on the TGA website officially. And um, they said, oh, they died within two weeks. And some sort of clause along the lines of were deemed, they, were, they died within two weeks getting the jab, but, te- but deemed unrelated through, after an investigation. And I rang them up and said, can I have details of that investigation? Of course, I couldn't get any kind of answer from them. Mm-hmm. And then I got an answer. And then I, so I saw this. I saw, saw deaths. And I thought, okay, people are dying from this, but why is that not in the headline? There's 550 people died of the jab, but there was only, you know, a few people dying of COVID at the time. So I was like, where the hell is the equal reporting on this? You know, fair enough. If COVID's a problem, let's report on it. But let's also talk about the deaths and the repercussions of taking the supposed antidote to it. Look, obviously, we didn't see that part. You know, I ran. It, I rang my local MP who put a big thing out. Uh, you know, a letter out to everyone saying, "Off, oh, you're in. Need anything from us? You know, this is all an emergency. We're all in it together." So I did. I rang them up and said, "Look, can you explain?" I wrote a really well worded letter. I said, "Look, can you explain? I've noticed this. 500 people had this thing, and this 500 people died from it. Um, and you want me to give it to my kids in the next couple of months? So can you can you just comment on where those deaths have?" come from and what the investigative process was, please. And I didn't get an answer. I rang them and they said, oh, we didn't know about that. We'll, we'll come back to you. Didn't get an answer. I re- long story short, I rang back eventually within, after about three goes, and I got a staffer from my local MP's office who told me to go get a life and go get, go get, go get a fucking life, go get fucking jabbed. Right. And wow. That was the MP's office. Yeah. Wow. It's right, like, Kim. Yeah. So I was really, I was like, wow, this is obviously a big topic for these people to go so ballistic. There's, they're obviously under pressure. They're obviously hiding something. They're obviously scared. There's, you know, this is not right. Anyway, it just got my nose out of joint. I said, right. So we sat around a campfire. So let's raise some money and let's go through these bastards. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it started from. We said, let's go, let's go launch a court case and hold these government officials to account. And we did that. We raised a few hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars very quickly because I just rang up everyone with money I knew and said, we wrote a little Zoom call about a week after that campfire and said, look, we're going to go launch a court case. Who wants to put five grand in? 
who's in? And everyone, you know, we had, I don't know, 150 grand in the first night because everyone said, yeah, we're in. Anything we can do, they're in, you know? And I threw five grand in myself at the time. It was like, okay, this is going to cost me. But then, and we did. Um, but we couldn't find a lawyer to take the case. We couldn't find anyone who could really represent us. No one would actually stand up and, and take it on. So it turned into a market. And what I realized is in our, in our little network of people we'd collected, and there was about a, a, couple, a dozen or more at that point, we had some very good marketers. Uh, we had people who had a really good understanding of how to get a message out and persuade people and so on. So we realized that that was probably somewhere we could be more effective is if these legal cases weren't going to work. And we did launch a number of them. I have to say we launched, we raised quite a bit of money for different legal things and some of them are still in progress. But the biggest impact came when we thought, let's go and do some marketing and get a message out to people in a way that is hopefully going to get some cut through and have people think twice. And that message was about sort of entering the conversation, including a wobble into the conversation for people who are considering, who bought into the narrative and been you know, brainwashed by the media. How do you unbrainwash them and have them think twice before they stick the needle in their kid's arm? Well, that's an interesting thing, Adam, because many of us get motivated to do things either through sheer excitement or sheer bloody anger. And it sounds like you guys certainly came in with that volition and that intention. And it's thanks to people like you that we actually have people standing up and questioning and not taking the status quo. What I'm fascinated about is you personally, as a dad, not only leading this with those other two incredible gentlemen, but as this, as a dad, where were you coming from, from that perspective? Where in your heart, what was your lion moment? Why, why was this so important to you? I think you said it, Kim. Um, it's, it's just, I'm a dad, I'm a father. And so I get emotional thinking about this because like, I mean, that's our job as adults, as parents, is to protect our next generation. And I'll do it for my kids and I'll do it for your kids. I'll do it for any kid. Like, that's just instinctive in me. Um, so for me, I, the thought of doing this to a generation of kids, it was just like, this is like a Holocaust. That was how it felt to me and I still, I still see it that way. And I thought, well, if I'm in a, if this is a Holocaust and this is so dire, because, you know, you take the proportion of adults that already died and been injured and extrapolate that across um, the, the population of children, it was just horrific. And people would say to me, I, you know, it just gets me emotional, as I said, because like, that's what we're here to do is stand up for our next generation. And I don't, I'll put my life on the line happily for my own children as most parents will and i can't understand how anyone wouldn't feel the same like that to me is just not even i can't even have words to compute it. it's like that's just there um and I, I thought that our job as parents at this point is to stand in front of our children with everything we have and that includes social ostracism that includes leaving school if we need to. That includes losing our house if we need to, losing a job, losing family, like whatever. You can take, and I've said this all along and I'm, I stand by it, is that you could take in whatever you wanted from me 
you could you could rip me of every asset I have, every friend I have, every whatever you want. And I'd stand there and still stand up for a generation of children who deserve to be healthy. Like, I don't care what you take out of me. So I, I think I, it's so <laughs> noble. It's so noble. And I just, I'm always curious with this, with people like you and Cindy, that your nobility, your belief, your values, your integrity, your authenticity, all of those things, your passion for the next generation. I just want to flip it to both of you because the people fighting on the other side also believed that they had all the right intentions. Now, some of them may have been swayed, but I spoke to people who genuinely had the same belief or same sense, but a completely different viewpoint. How do we account for that when we also can get Harvard professors sitting there having a debate, one is on one side and one is on the other? So it's not just academia or knowledge or education. How did you feel coming up against the people who were just as strong in their belief for the other viewpoint? Um, Look, it's a really, really good question. And I think the essence of why our movement had some success was in understanding that that was exactly the case of the people who were, for the most part, I understood that anyone who was about to put a jab into their kid were doing it from love for the same reason I would not do that to my child. And they were doing it because they love their kid and they want to protect them. And attacking them and making them wrong was not only unhelpful, it actually entrenched their position. So I think where we came from, as passionate as I am about it personally and how much – see, as a man, this is what I think I recognized, that every part of me wanted to go out swinging punches. I wanted to go and fight anyone, anything. Show me who to destroy and I'll do it because that's what we're – that's how I was raised anyway. You know, that's sort of the – watching John Wayne films and Rambo. But I equally recognize that that wasn't effective. I tried it, it in small parts and it just, it just it, it creates more conflict and it doesn't achieve anything. And what, what it wasn't achieving was changing anyone's mind. It wasn't actually getting through to anyone. So therefore I had to put my own need to be right and have an argument aside and go, you know, what, what, what might be effective? And I heard um, Robert Kennedy Jr. say this and he said, look, the way to disrupt an orthodoxy, this is at the time, he said, the way to disrupt an orthodoxy is not by challenging it, it's actually by um, asking respectful, curious questions of it and unpacking it in a respectful sort of conversational way. So what we decided to do is actually go to um, people and train them, if you like, and offer them resources on how to have respectful engaging conversations with those with a different viewpoint around something so such a high, highly charged topic as a jab. And that's what got the, the transact. That, that's what helped people question because I think for most, my understanding is a lot of people out there were about to do something which out, they hadn't been even invited to question it. They weren't naturally questioning it themselves. And in the media, it wasn't like, oh, you know, consider both sides of this argument. It's like, no, you must do this or you'll lose your job. You will be, you know, you'll be a social pariah. Your kid will die. You know, they give you all this fear. And instead we said, you know, what, what would, have you looked at the testing on this thing? Have you considered what might happen if the, you know, the big farmer get this wrong? Um, have you looked at some of the side effects that are happening elsewhere? Yeah, you're aware of what the myocarditis rate is in adults who've taken this thing. So, you know, like not being right, but being curious. 
and it gave people what was interesting. It gave, I believe, people a a um, something they could do. A lot of our followers and people, our, our audience, went, "Wow, something now I can actually physically do. There's a tool here I can use to be effective." All of a sudden, whereas previously they were just shouting from the rooftops and, and not getting anywhere, and having arguments with family and people that it wasn't effective. Suddenly, they had something that what could be effective. I'm interested in your take on that too, Cindy. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think you've you said the most important thing, in that, and that is um, being courageous. So, one of the most courageous things that we can do is question, inquire, and be curious. And Bren Brown says curiosity is an act of vulnerability and courage. We need to be brave enough to want to know more. And I just think that people were happy to, you know, watch that television set, be told by the media what they had to do and because of fear, as you said, they did a great sales job because of fear and then they found an answer to it. First of all, they came up with a problem. What's that, Madhavani, what's that um, Madhavani effect or something, Madhavali, you know, where he shows that people don't know how to play um, the, the the piano and sees it as a problem and then finds a solution. He brings the piano into the into the town and teaches lessons. Okay, it's called a, an effect of some sort. But, you know, that's that to me is what happened. And then I, I thought it was good the way you, you know, talked about how to do respectful conversations. And I think the most important thing is to ask questions to those people. Have you looked at this? Maybe not give them statements, but, you know, those questions. So from in my way of thinking, and I wanted to ask you this question and then I kept thinking, should I ask this question on this podcast? Because I don't understand how there could be 550 assumed deaths by the TGA and that product not pulled. Mm. If it was a vehicle, if it was a anything else, and we've had vaccines before where they've killed 10 people and they have pulled that vaccine, like I think it was swine flu, I never could, could understand that. So my question to you, and I'm going to throw it back at you, is, is do you think there's an agenda here? that is to make us sick and to keep us sick and to keep us not questioning and um, towards something? is. Do you think there's something or they've just made a big mistake and they were stupid? <laughs> I yeah. know this is a huge question. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Um, I, I And I've thought about this a lot and I don't pretend I know the answer. This is what I suspect. I think it's not an agenda as much as it is just systemic. I think it's just like, you know, Cindy, you and I have been in the natural health industry for a long time Mm. and we know that they don't want natural health. Like they've been trying to push, you know, the the same mob, the TGA, you try to bring in a, you know, a herb or some herbal formula into Australia and they put you through a $50,000 three-year process of trying to justify why it's not toxic and all this sort of thing. At the same time, while they claim it doesn't work, um, they don't want people to have natural health. They want you to be dependent upon big pharma for, you know, it's a good business to have people dependent on drugs ongoing. Um, just so I think the corporate 
motive behind it is probably to blame. And the agenda is almost just a corporate one. So let's get people on the on the on the drug bandwagon and keep them vaguely sick but not dead. Um, it, it's good for profit. So yeah, it's a good business it's, model. Yeah, it is a good business. Unfortunately, yeah, it really mm-hmm. is. And and I don't and I've worked as a consultant for some large health organizations in the past, and I could they were sponsored by drug companies, and I could see what their agenda. I got I looked back in time now. I go, wow, that that whole drug company was sponsoring, you know, that diabetes organization, for example, to basically keep people buying their drugs. They weren't trying to solve and cure diabetes. They were just trying to manage it so that people could live, you know, in their words, live well and, you know, stay on the, stay on the drugs and you'll be okay. And like, it's, they're not looking for a solution. They're looking, they're getting what they want, which is long-term customers. So agendas, you know, is there a reptilian people running the show and all that kind of thing? Who knows? But certainly in the way it plays out, I think corporations don't have a conscience. Corporations by almost are completely at they're psychopathic in nature in a lot of ways. Not necessarily, but they can be. They can easily become psychopathic and completely devoid of any, you know, human emotion or any feeling because people are removed from responsibility. And therefore, you know, they go, well, I'm a paycheck. You know, the same reason people took a jab to keep their paycheck and keep their job is arguably the same reason people work in those organizations that say, well, we'll just sacrifice, you know, this amount of kids are going to die. Well, it's just part of the profit equation. But, you know, I keep my job and I've got to pay the mortgage. It's the same sort of motivation. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the answer, but it's I know that it's probably deeper and more corrupt and sicker than we'd probably suspected. That's that's probably the biggest shock of all. And it, it is the agenda or the people running this thing, the depravity of it, is probably taken it's to see the amount of deaths and to see people continue with it. It's, you know, it's like, remember, remember when they, there was a, a needle in a, I mean, you mentioned car seats, but remember there was a needle in strawberries years ago. They, someone, yes. what, yeah. what, right. No one ate bloody strawberries feet for months. Hmm. And yet you can die of the jab and no one's going to mention it. And it's like, you know, like it, it doesn't make sense. No. Like it, and it doesn't make, doesn't make us conspiracy theorists to say, look, let's not eat strawberries for a while case there might be a needle in it. It doesn't make us mad. It makes us clever. Mm. You know, so I don't know. I'm giving you a long answer. To no, that, no, it was yeah. it was perfect. And, uh, you know, I, I just have to add something there. Like the TGA um, has now, um, I don't know exactly what they've done, but we have a product that's got ashwagandha in it and um, we have to remove it immediately. We cannot have it in that product anymore. Otherwise, we have to get some incredible approval like you were talking about. And I just thought, wow, hasn't killed anybody, but we have to remove it from our product immediately. Mm. We have to, all of our new packaging has to be destroyed. 10,000 bottles have to be destroyed because on that has the word ashwagandha. There's not a two-year phase out. There's not, you know, it just... It just blows my mind the stupidity of what they're doing um, with their regulations. And, and you know, ashwagandha is an adaptogen um, and it's it's well known in countries all over the world and yet in Australia it's got to be taken out of, of these products. Like ours is a green powder. It's, it's food. 
that's all it is. It's it's just a food, but we have to remove it. Um, and well, the, the thing is, I, I said, <laughs> pardon? It obviously works, otherwise they wouldn't attack it. Yeah, exactly. But going on from, you know, what you said is that, you know, you became, you know, you, you looked at law cases, you helped people um, have conversations, respectful conversations with the other the other side. So you went through that whole thing and you just decided that, well, I know you just didn't decide, you've had 30 years or 20 years of, of understanding this, that you wanted to make a difference, that you wanted to make sure that the next generation and this young generation uh, that we have with us has the ability to be healthy, has the ability to source good quality foods. And I thought what you did was a stroke of genius. Would you like to explain to our listeners how you came up with the concept of family farms? Yeah. Look, it did come off the back of the parents of the questions and sort of the, the we, I realised that, I guess, in myself, it was so, so draining and so traumatic and so utterly depleting what we did was, for me personally, I just put everything into it. it. Nearly, It nearly knocked me off my perch. I don't, I can honestly say it really did nearly, it took me a lot out of me personally, health-wise and well-being and you know i was kind of in ptsd or something afterwards i think and i realized i just i couldn't fight anymore you know like i'm not going to try and keep fighting the system um and i could also realize that you know no one else wanted to keep fighting either in fact the 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 fundraising would dry up and things would get you know it was not going to continue the way and i there's a tendency when you've been in that position to want to keep doing the same because it's part of your Part of it tickles the ego and says, "Oh, you know, I'm somewhere. I'm, I'm important now, and I'm going to keep going." And you know, and I'm, I thought, no, "This is not going to happen." So I thought, "What? What?" Long story short, but I thought, "What can we do that is creative rather than combative? What can we create as a solution to give people something to move towards rather than run away from?" And because I already had an interest in farming. And I believed in food, and I knew the the need for it, and that was kind of my background anyway. And you know that that thing I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I said I'd like to see organic food on every kid's dinner plate. That was my business mission for the last five years anyway. That's what I was trying to achieve. I just wasn't getting far with it, to be honest. So I was trying all these different approaches, and nothing was, you know, little bits and pieces were working, but I was only getting my foot a bit of toehold into the whole system. And I thought, well. I always feel guilty. I thought, well, maybe I could just offer what I've already been trying to do to our audience and see if people want it. And um, we just put a webinar on one day and I said, look, guys, we want to create something positive. We want to get something that gives you something back to your kids. And it shores up against food shortages and about, you know, the, the toxicity in our food and all the rest of it. Actually, I should say it was also it was also came about because I went down to the IGA or the sorry the food works here in Bangalore um, with my kids one day and they wanted to make me wear a mask to in order to shop there and I said I'm not wearing your mask mate I haven't done it all along and I'm not going to start now um, and this little shit of a manager um, sorry to swear but I, I got better words for him as well but <laughs> this guy um, refused to take money from me 
to buy food at Foodworks without putting a mask on in front of my kids. And I was just ready. You know, remember I said, mention Rambo and stuff. Earlier? I was ready to go Rambo on the guy. But I thought, no, contain, composure, walked out. And that was part of it. I thought, never again am I going to be dependent upon a system that's going to force me into doing something to comply just to feed my kids. That That is Orwellian. Mm-hmm. My, you know, I'm not going to be part of that. So how do we, how do we create something better? And so we said, went back to our audience and our people and said, look, guys, what if we could all buy a farm together and we put a farmer on it to grow food for you and everyone can eat good, healthy, quality food and have some ownership in a property that, you know, has, um, that is a legacy for your kids and a place for our kids together and get together and feel safe and, you know, connect to things that are important again, like being in the bush and playing outside and fresh air and all that stuff. And and being around, you know, some good people as adults in a village again. And we got overwhelmed with this response. We said, look, if you're interested, put a thousand bucks in this account and we'll we'll take that as a, a sign that you're serious. <clears throat> and um and we'll go ahead and make it happen. Knowing have knowing have no idea how that was gonna work or how that might look. And um then we were left with this, you know, two hundred odd families all saying, Yeah, let's go do it. We said, right, we better figure out how to do this now. So we went I love how you jumped in the deep end. I didn't know you did it that way. <laughs> we do everything that way. We just go, what if we can do that? Who wants it? And then we oh. see this audience for it. Then we go ahead and back, you know, backfill it. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, that, I think it's. That's a Kim Morrison. I've got to say, that is a Kim Morrison, Adam. Like, she'll go, right, I'm going to, cre- I'm, I'm going to create this blah, 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 this conference, this summit, this series. And then everybody signs up and she's like, right, I better get going. <laughs> Adam did a Kim Morrison. Great, great. It's really great. And they ask me, what's it include? Oh, would you like to know? What a surprise. That's the beauty of surprises, isn't it? (laughs) Kim is the master of it. And then she creates this incredible program uh, that blows my mind. And then you do the same. You and you are sister and brother from a different mother. (laughs) I think too, it's the whole thing of Fire, you know, jump off the cliff and find your wings on the way down yeah. rather than wait for it to be perfect. And I think there's change agents out there. And we need both sides, obviously, because people like me can also get carried away with the emotion and the drive of it. But we do realize also, even with your beautiful regenerative farm and the whole thing with parents with questions, all of that, it does require money, a financial input to make this a success and viable for everybody. Could you explain to us how well that went then and what where are you up to now with this beautiful farm or, or farms? Yeah. Look, the money thing's an interesting one. Um, it, and it comes up a lot to people. And I know I, I used to coach a lot of my health practitioners. A big block for them was actually, and, and I'm a, I was a business coach to them, right? So I wasn't teaching them how to do health, but I was teaching them how to do business better. And their biggest block, overwhelmingly, was around their ability to receive money and their, their preconceived beliefs around money. And if it was evil or pass it through an eye of a needle or whatever the hell, you know, like all that conditioning we get as kids around money was massive in terms of how, how well their business would work. So a lot of the coaching we did over the years was around the concept of money and 
our, our beliefs around it and how well we'll accept it or use it or if we see it as a tool or if it's evil or whatever. Um, and the same goes in this instance. I recognize that it's not, it's not possible to be effective if you're fighting against the government, if you, if you got, haven't got two bob to rub together. You need a big pot of cash in order to be confident in what you do. Um, and likewise with the farms, and I think that's the, what I'm getting. It's a big, it's people, they want, they, they expect these things, these sort of projects to happen all for free and for nothing. And I'm like, it's not how the world works, unfortunately. You know, like I, I need to make a living and I need to get paid and everyone else does as well. So um, getting people to commit financially to it is a big factor. And it does a few things. One, and it means that they're committed. That word is is important. Commitment doesn't happen until you until you put your your money down. And um, the good news is a lot of people are able to do things like access to self managed super and get creative about how they where they put their money. So I guess on the topic of money, people are also worried about you know should I leave it in the bank or you know is it should I be buying gold or what do I do with it? You know, there's a bit of uncertainty around that. So putting some money into some land and owning a bit of a real, a bit of real estate or a sure, a share in some real estate, which is one of the fastest growing assets. Um, you know, rural real estate is the fastest growing real estate asset in Australia right now. And it's backed by something that people don't get sick of, which is food as a commodity, you know? So it's, there's uh, there's reasons to invest in it that are, go beyond just the Freedom Network or earning food. It's like it's not a bad investment in itself. Um, so sorry, I'm going off topic there with the money side, but that's a big it's a big thing to have the money to do it is important. And once I believe, this is that, and people often say, well, if you don't have the money to do this, it's not fair because not everyone will have access to food. Let's my approach is these early phase projects need to get started with people who can afford it and um once we get them established then we've got capacity to feed others you know once we've got lots of farms all over the country going and a and a and a, and a food system running that is superior to coles and woolies and so on we can feed a lot of people with that we you know we, it's not excluding people at that stage it just needs to be financed initially and that's what these first few farms are doing is they're getting we're getting a model moving. We're getting a, you know, it's a community model and it's about people. Like there's a big heart share with these things at the moment. They're getting, people are coming together with their heart and their wallet and they're trying to make something better for their kids and for themselves. And the bigger picture will be, it's about creating what I call food system A. It's let's make a food system that is everything that food should be and can be and, and used to be local and it's chemical free and it's nutrient enhanced and it's you know grown with love and understanding and ethical treatment of animals and the ethical treatment of the soil you know has has that that's the sort of food you want high energy food is what you want on your kids dinner plate not some commodity that's been churned out you know through an industrial process um, where chemicals the the, the planters created as a resistant to a chemical not for its nutritional value or for its high yield not for its nutritional value it's just like our food system is so broke and what you're doing adam is creating a food system and and a multi-state food system that's local and 
um, owned by the people. Mm. Can I just describe um, to everybody what it felt like to be on one of those farms? I had the opportunity to go to the Sunshine Coast Farm and um, at the open day and as I parked my car, there was somebody else just getting out of their car and she she just went like this. She goes, this is my farm. You know, she was so excited. She obviously was bringing her parents and her husband was with her and she just said, this is my farm. And it was just, I got goosebumps, absolute goosebumps. And to see everybody camping and collaborating and helping and the vibe, if I can call it the vibe, was um, elation, uh, excitement, uh, solution. Everything was just, it was the most energetic, um, I guess, farm opening day I've ever been to. So, you know, and this was your second farm that you had, had purchased as far as I know. You might have purchased more, but... Um, this is the second farm as a community that you have purchased. Uh, and I just, I just, I still hear people talking about it, by the way, on the soundtrack. I say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a share in that farm. <laughs> so what you're doing is, I think you're, you're, you're giving hope. Um, you're giving people back control of their food supply. You're giving people back control of their health. You're giving people an opportunity to have a place to go to get out of the rat race, to learn how to grow foods, to be part of the food growing, um, commu- a food growing community. I, I just, I, I just, I could just accolade you to the the ends of the earth of what you have created and. And you have created, and one of my greatest things that I say is I want to create a tsunami of change. You have created a tsunami of change. And uh, I just want to take my hat off to you. So I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just <laughs> I just get so excited about what you're doing, Adam. Please go on and talk about how you structured it and how I, I know I couldn't believe how you structured it. And uh, how many farms you purchased? And yeah, I know right. last time he was meant to be on this podcast, just letting everybody know, he was out buying a farm in Western Australia. So um, <laughs> we forgave him for getting, to, for getting to be with us, but, yes, that's where he was. So, yeah, let us know what you've been doing and how you've structured it, how do people uh, get on, on this in their community or in their area because I'm sure, you know, you've got, more areas that you're going to be purchasing these beautiful farms in. So, yeah, sorry, continue. I interrupted. Yeah, no, that's okay. No, no, like I'll, I'll, it, was a, it was lovely listening to that. It's a good reminder because often it's easy, you know, to get caught up in the weeds of making these things work and it's just, you know, reconnecting to to what it's doing and the big why is is such an important thing and it's lovely hearing it from your voice, <laughs> yeah, you describing it. Um, look, we've, we've got uh, – we're coming up to four farms now. We've got um, Hunt. We've got a farm in the Hunter as well, at a place near, near um, Dungog, near Barrington Tops. Yeah, uh, we've got Cameroon up near Sunshine Coast. Here, you guys up and um, up near Mullaney. and we've got one out at what we call Mount Lion, which is out at Lynch's Creek near Kyogle in the Northern Rivers. And all three farms of those farms are just—they're just beautiful. They are just mm-hmm. epic 
physically beautiful properties that you get there and go, wow, the energy it's got, they've got mountains and they've got national park and clean rivers running through them. It's, it's quite spectacular country in every case, in every case. Um, so they lend themselves to camping and recreation and, but also to production and to food. And, um, that, that's that model. And the way we've done it is through a, a, a process called fractional ownership using a, a, a model called a platform called bricklet.com.au, I think it is bricklet. Um, and the fractional ownership is using something called equitable interest. So a company buys the farm and all our shareholders, if you like, have an equitable, equitable interest in the property. So it's allows us to operate and, you know, not fall under the, ASIC sort of jurisdiction, not become a managed investment scheme, all those sort of things. So we've we've really particular about you know making sure we tick all the boxes and follow the rules in that regard because we're raising significant amounts of money to do this as a as as a group. Um, we don't want to be you know falling afoul of the regulators. So the system is relatively simple. Now we've got it set up, but it took us a year of you know, a lot of legal investigation and, 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 you know, going up a lot of dead ends and dealing with regulators and things to get to the point we're at. Um, but the system is, is about a commercial farm. So we're actually buying the farm as a commercial ongoing concern. So it's not like a, it's not relying on everyone to turn up like the Amish and do it all together every weekend, even though that's, that's a really nice model, but in in modern life, it's actually like you buy the farm, we put a farming team in there to run it, and the farming team delivers produce and food back to us as customers. So we are uh, the owners, but also the customers of the farm. And yeah, you know, we could excess excess food will be sold outside of those us as owners. But the key thing is we buy the food back from the farm, um, and it's a commercial transaction. And the farm makes a little bit of money. Um, and maintains itself and is a profitable ongoing concern. Um, so it, it evolves each time. And we're about to, as you know, WA, we're about to go to a settlement on a farm out there today, in fact, hopefully. Exciting. Uh, yeah. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's a really nice food producing property. They're all regenerative farms. We're all about following regenerative principles and you know, giving back to the soil and to the, you know, and make sure we have good treatment of animals and so on. So it's all using that, um, you know, chemical free and regenerative methods. Um, but I think a key, a key component to consider, there's two things probably worth mentioning. And one is the social part of it. There is a, a community owned asset is, it sounds great. And it, and it is like, I believe in it wholeheartedly. But it does require, uh, you know, a, another leap in consciousness and self awareness for everyone involved in order for it to work well, and in, in, you know, including myself as part of it. Um, you put all those people together with their hearts on their sleeves, so invested in it. As you said, Cindy, it's really a lighthouse of what's possible. You know, mm. we're really showing the way forward, and I believe that is ultimately what we're there for: is to show, reconnect people with something that is possible for everybody. Um, but that that's a it's a creative process it's not here's a solution in a box it's not saying to people here we've created everything and thought about everything we've created a framework 
And now the community steps in and effectively runs the thing. And so in other words, we don't manage these farms ongoing. We, and we're not allowed to. BASIC doesn't allow you know, parents the questions to do that. Otherwise, we become a managed investment scheme. Our job is to empower the community to take it on with, with all the, as much in place as possible. But that's a co-creative process and it takes a lot of awareness and it takes you know, some challenges in that in terms of getting us as a community to really work together, particularly coming out of the Freedom Network where we've all been burnt by authority and you know, the old structures a little bit. So it's, we're in a process of, of creating something new on more than just the physical level, I think is probably a point. But on a very practical note, moving forward, we're now looking at the model we've been created and said, look, the demand for this arguably is about to go exponential. And the reason for that is the looming uh, mRNA vaccinations going into our meat, meat, mm-hmm. meat source. Cattle, pigs, and sheep if they have their way, we'll, we'll be, if the government has their way, we'll be all vaccinated in the next little while with mRNA vaccines against lumpy skin disease and things. So should that happen, no one's ever going to go out for meat pie ever again. No one in our community anyway. No one's going to eat out again. You won't be able to buy food at Coles or Woolies and, know, and be of any guarantee that what you're eating isn't containing the very stuff you've been, spent the last four years avoiding. And what that does to us and our kids and who else, who knows? Who knows what that stuff's going to do to us? So that is, a, that is a fundamental, a seismic shift in the food system that's looming. And the only workaround I can suggest that I've got, that I, the way I understand it, and I'm not saying this is foolproof by any means, but is you need to own your own meat source. And you need to know exactly what goes into that, have control over it, have control over the growth of it, the care of it, the husbandry, everything that goes into it, and the killing, the abattoir, the process, that all needs to be under your control as well in order to guarantee where your meat is coming from. So if, if you send a – I would foresee that unless you own your own cow on your own property um, and you're able to slaughter that animal and, and, and butcher it on site and eat it as, as an owner, you're not going to be able to send it to an abattoir because they'll need a vaccination certificate. That's that's not that's a prediction, not a not a promise. You know, that's my opinion. But that's where they'll do, they'll stop you getting into a into a commercial abattoir. I believe if you're not vaccinated, if animals aren't vaccinated, they'll they'll regulate it all so that you know you're up against it. You're going to be really up against it. A lot of people will be turning vegetarian. I think. So the demand for having your own farm and your own access to your own meat is probably never more, it's arguably never been more important. I, don't I have know to say, that. I, I think that you say that we won't have meat, but I'm, I'm going to beg to differ. We, we've got this amazing new thing called lab meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with that? What could what possibly, could go, possibly wrong? go wrong? <laughs> so... I got to tell you, I looked into this, Adam, this lab meat, and, you know, on the surface you look at it and you go, wow, whoever thought this up and whoever figured this out, you know, they're pretty smart how they've figured out exactly the medium that that 
cell, that lab, that cells need to go on, how they get the cells out, how they scaffold it, how they harvest it. Like you really have to take your hat off because it's complicated. Like it is really complicated. But because they're using uh, animal serum in order to bathe these lab cells in it, it's not vegan in any way. There is, I don't know if it's the death of an animal or whether the the animal is bled and that's where they get that all these serums from. But because of that, they have to now create the component, each component of the medium that the lab meat has to be in in order to grow. So you're, you're looking at hormones and... Um, immune factors and serums and you're looking at all these things that they have to synthetically make in order to grow this lab meat and I just go oh I have a cow on grass that has a bull with it and I don't know what they do but another bull another cow comes out and we multiply (laughs) I I just don't I don't understand it's a junk food. It is a definite junk food because the scaffolding that they use has pegs in it. So, and Kim knows about these polyethylene glycols mm-hmm. and how they affect the, you know, human health. I just, it's beyond comprehension. So, um, Kim, I'm just not sure people are going to go to lab. Just not sure. Yeah. And then, you know. <laughs> you have to remember that I think what, Adam, you said previously or just at the beginning is you were trying to un- um, programmed the thoughts and beliefs around what this the vaccine, for instance, or perhaps that's now lab meets, whatever it is. Ultimately, we are a hypnotized race. We believe what we see on the box. We believe what our doctors say with respect. We believe what the medical system, it used to be the church, and perhaps it still is the church. I remember Cindy saying years ago that hospitals have now become the new churches um, of our era. I'm curious to know from your point of view, Adam, we've talked a lot about the doom and gloom here with some possible scenarios from your perspective, but I want to ask from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of both of us, do you see hope? Do you see that good will prevail over any of the evil or perhaps the agendas that we've spoken of? Is there light at the end of the tunnel for us and future generations? (laughs) It's a, it's I I think about this almost daily. So I'm sure most of us do at the moment. Um, look, I'll give you I'll give you a practical example of what I see happening. People people at the moment every time we buy a farm, everyone says, "Oh, but what about the um, you know, in WA at the moment they've been saying, oh, but if we buy a farm and there's this Aboriginal cultural heritage law that is." They're putting over people and, you know, destroying farmers and mines and yeah, they're trying to really, I don't, I don't want to get into the politics of that, but, you know, they're putting this the control mechanism over farms that everyone's very concerned about. They seem to have repealed it, but it's probably, it'll come back or something will come back at one point. But they so in other words, everyone gets very doom and gloom about what might happen, what might happen. And I say to people, yeah, you know what might happen is that they'll push this thing on and the harder they push, the harder they squeeze, the higher we rise. Every time control comes in, every time they push hard, the human spirit bounces back harder and and, and quicker and and more robustly. That's one thing I know for sure. Not on everybody, not on every one of the population, 
But in a proportion of us, we go, you know what? Bring it on because we got enough fight. We got enough love in our heart. We got enough consciousness. We got enough belief in our future that it doesn't matter what you do to us. We'll keep bouncing back. We'll keep coming back. I saw this after the floods here in Northern Rivers. And it was just so inspiring. Mm. Place was absolutely, I mean, devastated is not the right word for it. It was destroyed. You know, the whole city of Lismore was just taken out. And, you know, people were just traumatized beyond belief. But this is a town that, you know, the week earlier, you'd have to be walking down the street and people would be shouting at each other to put masks on and, you know, not letting you in the shops because of vaccine status, all that kind of thing. And And a week after the flood, they're feeding each other, cleaning each other's houses out, looking after each other. See, love wins. The end of the day, mm-hmm. it just people come back to that when they remember what's important. And you know that's what wins. The evil stuff is, and the ugly stuff is is there, and it looks like it's overwhelming, and it's and maybe it is, you know, maybe maybe it wins a lot of the time, but it's not ultimately going to have. It's not as strong, but a far stronger power and forcefulness is a power rather than a force. Is 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 that human spirit and and people's love for each other? If um, <laughs> we can't believe in that, then yeah, I give up. <laughs> See, Adam, this is why you and Kim are, are siblings from another mother, because she sees the world like that too. I mean, she may have asked that question, but um, I don't know of anybody else who, and this isn't a derogatory term, this is a this is a loving term. She sees the world with rose-coloured glasses because there's nothing we can do about what whatever's happening out there. We can only be the change agents for ourselves and our family and perhaps our community by buying local organic foods or buying up land, making sure we know where our food is coming from, using cash, uh, not supporting the big multinationals, not supporting people that are not telling us the truth. So, I, I I love the both of you because that's, you know, when I hear you speak, Adam, I feel like I'm hearing Kim speak mm-hmm. because she has hope and you have hope and you both also work towards helping people make a difference in their lives. Kim might not be doing it with farms, but she's definitely doing it with her coaching and her um, and her programs and protocols and everything that she does. So I want to commend the both of you. I, I, I want to commend you, Adam, because I always do, because I just, I talk about you, I think, every day to somebody, uh, especially people Your, who are boy crush, losing Adam. Pa- pardon? Yeah, boy crush. Um, <laughs> just because people are losing hope and you've given them hope, you know, and, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you to both of you. I've decided your siblings. That's it. <laughs> well, I'm happy with that. I'll take yeah. it on. I, I'll go, I, I I'll wanna, go that one too. Thank yeah, you. I want to come. I want to come down and play and stay at your place. Um, I, I do have one final question. I know we could talk all day, and I especially love having you two all to myself and with these listeners. <laughs> I wonder just from your personal self, gorgeous Adam. Yes, I am calling you gorgeous. Um <laughs> Who inspires you? Mm-hmm. Who keeps your heart going? Who 
who or what is it that is your driving motivator? Apart from your children, I get that loud and clear and future generations, but you're a coach and a supporter for so many other people. Who's yours? Good yeah. question. Thanks for that question. It's a it's a good one. It's um and it changes a lot for me. Well, not a lot, but it changes. I look, I've always been inspired in the past, long before any of this happened, by um, you know, stories of Mandela and um I don't know, Oscar Schindler and um and you know, Gandhi and you know, no, 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 you know, I know they're a bit cliched saying those, but the people I, I always I'm intrigued when people and Ma Ali, I've got a big picture of Muhammad Ali on my wall. And um, seeing how people react and conduct themselves in the face of violent opposition is of always been interesting to me and always been inspiring. And um, okay, I, and I kind of recognise that that's the point we're all at now. We've got our moment. You know, I think it's worth saying that. I think this is what I'm really aware of, acutely aware of, is this is our moment. This is this is our moment in history. This is our Vietnam or our civil rights or our Holocaust or whatever it is. That's you know, this is it for us. This is as adults, we've had a pretty easy ride, I think, our generation mm-hmm. on anyway. Um, so right now, I look at people. I'm I'm reading Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book, and I find him an enormous, um, you know. You know, the fact he turns up in the face of so much adversity and keeps coming back, standing up for the poor people, the people who are oppressed for the next generation, for for the environment, no matter what. You know, that that to me is an enormous amount of inspiration. Um, so he He's my current hero. Um, and like I said, Ali and, and others in the past – and it's not just about their success, it's about what they went through in order and who they turned up as in the face of it. So, yeah, I think I'll, I'll call Kennedy my current inspiration. Zach Bush has been someone I was lucky enough to meet him in his last tour when he's out here, Dr. Zach Bush. Amazing inspiration also um, over the years. But in the current current particular crisis, you know, and there's people, some of these the doctors that have stood up and, and stood out, like Robert Malone and... Um, and uh, you know, I can't remember all the names even at the you know, moment. McCullough and Melissa McCann. Oh, yeah, There's so yeah. many of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the guys like Brian Rose from London Real and some of mm-hmm. the casters and the people that have really, you know, be the ones that's you know what's been interesting in this whole thing is like there are not that many of them out there who've really stood out. Like Sarah Senator Jared Rennick is someone I've met a few times and just have so much respect for. I mean, the man is just prepared to go to war with anyone and 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 maintain his composure and speak his truth. And I'm like, man, that's there's not many of them out there though. Um, so they're they're my inspiration. I hear, I, go, I hear that and I go, yeah, there's some, there's some good individuals out there. There's some good human beings. There's not as many of them as we like. But thank God they're there. I think Adam that. Uh, these are the people that we hear a lot of, you know, like Robert Kennedy and Peter McCullough and um, Senator Rennick and Malcolm Roberts. So they're in the public eye and so we hear them. But there are a lot of people that aren't in the public eye that are are still doing great things out there. We just don't know what that they're out there doing it. And I think it's that collective consciousness of 
those people that drive people like Robert Kennedy, like he just blows me away at the moment. I, I'm watching him, you know, go for the presidential election. I think the last person we spoke to said he's not gonna he's not gonna win, even though we'd all like him to win, he's not gonna win. Well, there are some people that don't want him to win, but um he, I just remember him saying he's not gonna win. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a little bit negative. I just think we have to be consciously aware of of how we are saying those things and um, be more conscious about saying he's got hope. There's there's enough people out there that are backing him. The same for Rennick and Malcolm Mm. Roberts and, yeah, and you. So, It's an honour to be put in that list, I tell you. yeah. You deserve to be there, Adam. We are so <laughs> in awe of you. When mm-hmm. I heard you speak at the Nutrition Academy Summit last year, I just I had no idea there was an opportunity like what you've created. And it's out of the adversity or the challenge or the rising, as you call it, that we actually do find solutions or we do look for new and innovative ways. So again, both of us just want you to know that we do hold you in that regard and we are absolutely honoured and privileged to have you on the show. And I know that we're going to get lots of listeners saying, thank you. Thank you for bringing him to our ears. Mm. So I just want to say thank you as well. You are my new superhero. <laughs> well, and thank you. And I, I, it's just it's remiss, remiss of me not to say this too, is that what you just said before too, Cindy, is there is in parents' questions, it's very easy being the face of it to sort of take a lot of the accolade for it. But as you pointed out, there is everything that's happened in parents with questions and, and even the, the family farm as well was down to everyday people who don't get the audience, who haven't got the profile necessarily, don't don't have a microphone in front of them, being brave enough to step out and do something in defense of their kids, in defense of other people's kids, standing up and being courageous. And that's that's what made Parents with Questions work and it's what's making these farms work, is everyday people, everyday people who can become heroes. And I, I've, I've been quoting myself all along on this one. So this this pandemic and everything it's created and all the, all the upheaval we've been through, there's cowards being exposed and there's heroes being created. And most of those heroes, you know, mums who have that tough conversation with their friends over coffee morning about whether the kid gets a vaccine, you know, or the, or the family that scrapes together enough money to buy into the farm because they want their kids to have a bit of future. Mm. They're they're the ones I get a lot of inspiration for. So if somebody wants to be a part of a piece of land in Australia, that's productive and, has um, camping and recreational facilities available to them. If somebody wants to do that, how do they get in contact with you, Adam? Uh, we have a website called thefamilyfarm.com.au and uh, I think it's ask at parentsofthequestions.com.au, but just through the website, we've got a, a contact there. Um, you can you can express your interest and put your name down and say this is the area I'm in, this is the region I'm in, this is you know what I'm interested in being part of. Um, I hope to launch soon a an opportunity to, to simply just a, a coaching program for people to do this for themselves. So in other words, rather than saying we'll do the farm for you, we're going to teach you how to do it for yourself. So 
we want to see these things everywhere. Um, so if you if you're even considering it or would like to be part of it, I encourage everyone to be part of be on our website now and our mailing list and our email list, and we'll then we'll be, we can stay in touch and we can help you make it happen. So thefamilyfarm.com.au. So just to um, reiterate about the the coaching program, so that's to coach somebody in an area, an obscure area, say in Australia, mm. to collect a community together to purchase land. Is that what that's about? Spot on. Yeah. Oh, really wow. Awesome. Yeah. And we, and again, I'm putting my foot in. I'm doing what you do, Kim. I'm just announcing before it's ready. <laughs> but, Uh-oh. <laughs> Get um, ready. But we just, Get ready. <laughs> yeah. There's a real understanding, I think, in me that rather than it's about empowering people to do this. You know, it's it, in its essence isn't that complicated. But there's some complexity to it, I guess, in the in the execution of it. So we we want to be able to enable people everywhere to do this because we can't do a farm on every you know we can't feed every kid in Australia based on our model. It's too it's it's too much heavy lifting. Um, but every kid in Australia deserves access to something like this. I believe, and t- particularly around the food system, you know they need to eat well if they're gonna if they. We're going to have a generation. We talked about hope before. If we're next generation is going to be able to really thrive with what's being handed to them, a solid foundation of good connection to nature, understanding themselves, and a healthy, a healthy diet is the fundamental from which you know they're they're upon those shoulders. That's that's the foundation they need to stand upon. So, in that regard, we'd like to see this food system happen in every community in every part of Australia. And um, we can coach people on how to do that far more effectively than we can do it for you on our own. Well, you've just blown me away again. Here we are. You do it every time, Adam. I'm just, I didn't know you were doing this. Sign us up. (laughs) I haven't even told my business partner we're doing this yet. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I knew it. And we're going to put this out real quick. No. (laughs) This is just, it's no. just the understanding. This is, this is how we're going to do it. It's, you know, our, um, yeah. Anyway, I've said what we said. We, we'll, we'll make it happen because we yeah. have got the IP there. We've got the ability to help people do it. Um, and it's, it's, is we come back to this idea of, you know, it's either entitlement or empowerment. Yeah. And I think our biggest lesson in the next, in the last few years is we've, we've all been pretty entitled, myself very much included in terms of, you know, the government owes me this and the government should do this for us. And, you know, or our, our institutions should deliver that. Well, guess what? We can't trust any of those things anymore. So how do we take control back? How do we be empowered in ourselves as, as families, as community in order that, you know, they can't control us. This is the essence of the farm is being uncoercible. That's why you want to own a farm is so you're not coercible anymore. If you've got a community around you, you've got people around you, you've got foods, your food's provided for, um, you've got a place to go if things get tough. You're not, people can't tell you what to do then. Mm. You're not going to be, you're not going to be rolling over just because it's convenient. You know, like suddenly you've got, you've got a foundation there. And I think a lot of us realize we didn't have that, you know, four years ago. Well, not to the degree we need. And this is, this is being uncoercible and then taking that big shift in ourselves to say, you know what, I'll be the hero of this story. 
I'll go start our own farm. I'll get this thing happening. I'll be the one in the community that stands up and actually makes it work. Because quite often we all do it. And I did it at the beginning. We look around and go, someone should be doing something about this. <laughs> you look over that shoulder and that shoulder go, oh, hang on, there's only this idiot in the middle. Um, and that's where a lot of us have found ourselves. And I think continually now, cont- you know, more, more continuously, that's going to be the thing. We all get to the point and go, hang on, I'm the one in the middle of all this who wants to see the change. Therefore, you know, God's tapped me on the shoulder. It's, that's the call. Go make it happen. Be the leader. Go find some new skills in yourself. And if not you, who? And if not when? Or not if not now, when? So Spot well Spot done, Adam. Mm. You know, we've taken up enough time and I realise that you're going to have to get starting on this coaching program right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that just it's ready a surprise. when this, when this podcast comes out. Everybody. <laughs> you better go tell your partner. <laughs> yeah, he's. He's on holidays this week, so when he gets back, he's in for a surprise. So, look, <laughs> this is what we're doing. I love it. I love it. I think it's a great idea, and I and I absolutely adore you, Adam. I just think you're the hero in our story of what's happening in family farms and to see that you're going to empower other people to do it, not just you, because I know this has taken a lot of your time. And on behalf of Kim and myself, we'd like to thank you for being who you are, what you're doing, how you're changing the world and helping people not be uh, coercible. I'd love that word, don't be coercible. Yep. So thank you, Adam. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a real pleasure speaking to both of you this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.